0: Heaven came down, and it's our Christmas series. And I want to start with what is probably a familiar passage uh, from Luke chapter 1, one of the Christmas birth narratives, and I've entitled our sermon, The Messenger. Once in a while, God reveals himself clearly, even miraculously, uh, to a person who does not believe in Jesus. It's not the norm. The Apostle Paul had such a story. If you remember his conversion, there was sort of a blinding light. He experienced physical blindness. He heard a voice from heaven. I didn't get that. I suspect you didn't get that. In modern Muslim conversions, believe it or not, there is often, and I believe it's 20 some, 30% of the time, I've heard some statistics on it, There is often a miraculous sort of dream or vision of Jesus, because in Islam, Jesus is a prophet, but he's not the son of God. But there is often a dream or a vision of Jesus that is a part of a Muslim conversion process to Christianity. It's very common. It's been well-researched, and I would call that a miraculous conversion. But most of us don't get miracles on our path to Jesus. In fact, one of uh, sort of an arrogant side of us a little bit is we assume that if, if we were walking with Jesus, if we had lived in A.D. 30, Jesus would have been an easy choice and we would have made the right choice. We assume that we would have heard his words and seen the miracles and understood and followed him. But in fact, most people who met Jesus did not follow him. Most people who saw his miracles did not believe in him. In fact, there were times in Jesus' ministry uh, when his movement was just hanging on by a thread. In fact, after one particular unpopular sermon, only the 12 were left, and Jesus asked them, are you guys going to leave too? And they said, you have the words of eternal life. And so they stayed. For the disciples themselves, full commitment to Jesus took time, and it took many exposures to Jesus' teaching and his miracles. They were convinced over time, and they weren't really true New Testament Christians until after the resurrection. They were followers, but they didn't understand the implications of the resurrection until after the fact. They were convinced over time. We are no different. We are convinced over time, and we don't wake up with, Peter, James, and John sleeping on the other side of Jesus' camp. It's harder for us to have faith in Jesus 2,000 years removed from these stories than it was for the original followers. Faith for us is much harder. And actually, Jesus recognized that, and Jesus made comments about it. I believe it was after the resurrection when uh, Thomas finally believed in him. And Jesus said, Blessed are those who do not see the holes in my hands. Where the spear hit my side. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He's talking about us because it's a lot harder for us to believe in something that happened 2,000 years ago than it was for those who saw a resurrected Jesus. We need time, we need exposure to stories about Jesus to find him. And it comes in the form of people who come into our lives. For, for some of us, for me, it was my parents. It was the church I grew up in. It was all of those exposures. Paul said it this way. One plants, in other words, one plants the seeds. He's using a farming analogy about coming to faith. One plants, another waters. God gives the increase. It's multiple exposures over time, and God governs that process in our lives. And if that process doesn't happen, people don't come to faith. There's sort of a, a faith scale that I like to use, and I, I've used this many times, an analogy of sort of a, a, a true atheist, somebody who would never come into a church. Maybe he would come into a church for his mother's funeral. That's about it. The atheist, he, he hates God. He has no interest in faith. He teaches at the University of Minnesota, where my wife graduated. That person is a minus 10 They're a minus 10 on the road to faith. They're far from God. There might be a person who's a minus five who was raised in a religious home but but never really embraced it, sort of rejects it, but has some knowledge of God. That might be a minus five. The person at zero is is the point where they come to faith. But you got people who are open to God but they're not at the point of faith. A zero is the point of faith. A plus five is maybe a person who's known the Lord for many years and they're partway down their discipleship path and a plus 10 is Billy Graham and maybe Mother Teresa and Didi Breshaber. And you all understand why that is. But people are all over that sort of scale of faith. And the people outside of faith, those minus 10 to minus one, They need multiple exposures to us, to truth, to the church, to go from a minus 10 to a minus 8 to a minus 6 to a minus 4 to a minus 2, and then at the point of faith, to accept Jesus. The last research I heard on this is really dated. I'm confident it's not accurate or even close. But I remember hearing that usually it takes about seven exposures to the gospel for a person to cross the line of faith. I don't believe that's even remotely close today in light of the postmodern philosophy that's affected the whole Western world. It takes a lot for a person to come to faith these days to overcome the barriers to faith that are built up in their lives. This is such a profound principle that it actually applied to Jesus himself. God knew this, God knows this because people have a heart problem. To use another farming analogy that Jesus used. We are often hard soil. He used sort of a farming analogy of different kinds of hearts. We are hard soil. The the word of God can't penetrate it. Or we're stony soil. It, It penetrates a little bit and then it's gone. Or we're weedy soil where it penetrates our hearts but it's competing with the world. We are skeptics. We're distracted by the world. We're judges of God himself today. One reason a lot of younger people reject Jesus is because he just doesn't fit enough into modern culture. So we judge him. Not he judges us. We judge him and we reject him because he's not woke enough. That's a problem. It's a hard problem. It's why the prophecies about Jesus coming to earth always included a pre-Jesus messenger. We know that pre-Jesus messenger is John, or John the Baptist. Today we're going to look at his story and its part in the birth narrative of Jesus. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And about three quarters of the way through, it starts with page 1 again. When you get to the New Testament, Luke chapter 1 is on page 43 in the Bible in front of you. Page 43, if you want to follow along with me. And this is just a beautiful story it's it's actually one of my favorite stories in the bible it's almost humorous it is humorous we're going to make it humorous whether it was intended to be or not and god will forgive us for that luke chapter 1 page 43 now luke is a physician here and i love the way he writes because he writes as a researcher and i'm going to point this out in a few minutes but listen to how he begins his gospel Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, in other words, many have written gospels or history about Jesus, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order most excellent Theophilus. Now what he's saying is, I'm writing in a gospel account that is uh, chronological. Many gospel accounts are not chronological. They're often thematic. He's saying, I'm giving you a chronological account of what I've learned about Jesus in my studies. And he's writing to this uh, dude named Theophilus. So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. And then he begins. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, There was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, so his wife was also the daughter of a priest. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, In the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord, and he'll drink no wine or liquor. That's a Nazarite vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner. Now he's referencing some Old Testament prophecies. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I don't appreciate being questioned. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent now, (laughs) and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people, people outside, were waiting for Zechariah, were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Three quick points from this passage. Another prophecy fulfilled. All right, so this may not excite us that much, but it was incredibly important because it gave credibility actually to Jesus as well. But... This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Many are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. This was one also that was fulfilled. Luke is a physician. He writes like a researcher. As we said, he uses research terms like having investigated everything from the beginning to write it out in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth. Some translations say, so you will be certain or have certainty about the things you've heard. So Luke is saying to this Theophilus who he's writing a two-volume set to, Luke and Acts, I, I've taken records of everything I've learned about Jesus, and he has some unique information that the other gospel writers don't have, and he's trying to say, I, I've done a good job of researching so you can be certain that what you've heard about Jesus is true. And Luke begins with what anybody looking for Messiah would expect, the messenger ahead of time. Now this is because multiple prophecies took place hundreds of years earlier that relate to this. And I want you to see the two primary prophecies. First is Isaiah chapter 40, If we could get that on the screen, please. Isaiah chapter 40, and I'm going to read it up here a little closer. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this is in a section of Isaiah about the the coming of Messiah and this is about a person who's going to precede Messiah or God's coming to earth. And then the last couple of words in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, 5 and 6, here's the other one. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, this is talking about kind of the end times, which we're technically in, because when the Messiah comes, other things are gonna follow, so it's put in those kinds of words, but he's referring to this Elijah the prophet coming, somebody like Elijah, right before Jesus comes back. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. 400 plus years before Jesus. They point to the next great event in salvation history. Not the virgin birth, not a miracle worker, not Jesus, not the Messiah. It's the historical figure that has to precede Messiah. Now Luke 1.17, which we read through, collects phrases from both of these prophecies. And when the angel is talking to Zechariah, he says, your son is going to be this man, this individual. And every gospel writer and Jesus himself, in his words, concluded that John the Baptist fulfilled those prophecies. It's not exciting. We actually don't know a lot about him. But without him, I want you to think about this, without him, Jesus is a fraud. Without him, Jesus is not Messiah. This prophecy must accompany Jesus. His place in history, John's place in history, is essential. Second, we have another Christmas miracle. Luke weaves the pregnancies of these two women, Elizabeth, mother of John, and Mary, mother of Jesus, together. We read about Elizabeth in Luke 1, 26, or I should say Luke 1, up to verse 26. Then you read about Mary, verses 26 to 38. Then you're back to John the Baptist's birth right after that. And then John's birth in early life. And then Luke chapter 2, Jesus' birth and early life. These young boys are intertwined. Because they are essential to each other. And they're both miracles, I believe. And the story in Luke 1 is priceless. And I'm going to just walk through some of those details with you. In Israel, being a priest was more about lineage than calling. You didn't grow up and say, hey, I think I want to be a pastor when I grow up. You didn't do that unless you were from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. You couldn't do it. Because all priests had to be sons of Aaron. Zechariah was a priest. Most priests lived near Jerusalem to be in proximity to the temple and temple service. Many of them lived in Jericho. Zechariah did not. He lived in the hill country. Some speculate that this was because they had no children. And this would have been a much bigger deal than than it is today. Some people choose not to have children today. That would have been very unlikely back then because your future kind of depended upon your children taking care of you. And also there would have been a harsh judgment on a couple unable to have children. It would have been viewed as God's judgment. And you see this in many places in the gospel where things have gone bad for somebody and everyone's wondering. In fact, remember there was a paralyzed person and the disciples said to Jesus, Uh, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because they naturally assumed if something was wrong with you physically, you were being judged. And it was your fault or somebody else's fault. Difficulty meant somebody sinned. Now, we don't believe that theology. We believe the fall affects all of us and it affects everything. But in that culture, it was very judgmental. So Elizabeth would not have had a good time among her female friends. In fact, this was such a serious issue, it it would have been... Forgive me, this was not the year of the woman. It would have been assumed that she had the problem, it was divorceable, and he would have been expected to divorce her. That's how judgmental it was. And that's actually why early in the chapter, Luke makes some character statements about both of them, that they were upright. You wouldn't have to say that, but he's saying it because he understands culturally everybody judged them because they were childless. And so it's probably why they lived in the hill country to get away from the rest of the priestly family and their dreams of children had passed. Now Zechariah was one of about 20,000 priests in Jesus day. You ever look at the staff page of your church and wonder why do we need all these staff? Imagine looking at their staff page, 20,000 priests. It was well beyond what was needed so because of that their service was limited they divided it up and so each priest served at the three key festival weeks that took place in the jewish calendar plus two of the 48 other weeks so the 20,000 priests were divided into 24 divisions and actually it references his division 24 divisions of just under a thousand so you'd have about a thousand priests available all the time. So specific duties, special duties, were chosen by lot, like drawing straws, chance. One special duty was the burning of incense after the sacrifice. It represented Israel's prayers going up to God. And if you were chosen to burn incense, you could never do it again in your life. It was a unique, special day for you. Zechariah was chosen to burn incense. Thousands of people are outside after the daily sacrifice. And he's going to burn incense and then he's going to go out and bless the people, as would be the norm every day. And he's delayed. Delay of a priest coming out of the temple is never a good thing. Remember, on the Day of Atonement, they'd put a rope on the priest's leg in case God struck him dead so they could drag him out. You know, they put bells on him when they walked around to know that they were still moving. It was a very serious thing if he was delayed. But in the temple, an angel appeared to Zechariah, and he said, God has heard your prayer well, there would be normal prayers that the priest would make for, for the salvation of Israel, for Israel to be restored. So that would be logically what Zechariah would assume, but Gabriel was talking about a more specific prayer. You're going to be a father. Your son will not just be any son, but the messenger, the one who precedes Messiah. And he quotes parts of those two passages which I showed you a few moments ago. Zechariah <clears throat> did not handle the situation the way you and I would have handled it. He broke the code, and he got stupid. He questioned an angel who was appearing miraculously in front of him. Gabriel was not amused. Maybe he was a little sleep-deprived, had a little low blood sugar, but he exercised sort of a physical mini-curse, and he gave Zechariah speechlessness for the nine months during which this promise would come to fruition. But Zechariah's question made sense. And that's why I call this another miracle. I'm not saying it's like the virgin birth, but, but it's close. He uses language of himself and Elizabeth. When he questions the angel, he basically says, how can this be? And he used language of himself and his wife that is normally reserved for the 60 plus crowd. In other words, we're this age, our bodies don't do this anymore. It, he was saying to the angel, basically, based on the language used here, my wife is postmenopausal. We've given up. Our bodies don't make babies. We've accepted it. I don't want any false hope. I would need some proof. And just because you're showing up here, That's not proof. But Gabriel assumed a miraculous entry, the whole angel suit, the bright light, feathers, I don't know, that should be enough. But it wasn't for Zechariah. He's got a sign, he's got an angel talking to him. But it wasn't enough. And so the angel put this, we'll call it a mini curse on Zechariah. And he couldn't speak for nine months. He went out to bless the people. Couldn't talk. Now I would I'd give up my hair to know what happened next. <laughs> Some we say, that's not a lot to give up, Paul. I, I just want to know, you know, did he go home and tell Elizabeth about this? Or did he just take her on a couple's retreat or shop at Bath and Body Works and create a romantic evening. I, I just would love to have been there to know how he handled this. But either way, Elizabeth's body found new life. I believe miraculously. And a post-menopausal woman who had her whole life cycle of being able to bear children dreamed of a child and never had one now she's pregnant it was a christmas miracle it was the first of many third point the messenger of heart prep and that's what this passage is really about that's the purpose so far it's it's kind of a cute story but we've got to remember the purpose moving a heart to faith is not easy Moving a heart to commitment is not easy. Most of the people who were around Jesus didn't follow him. Most of the people in the world today who hear about Jesus won't follow him. Even for Jesus, people needed a lot of exposure. Think about that. And think about the crowd who first got these stories and who saw Jesus They were looking for a Messiah. They knew about a virgin birth from their Old Testament scriptures. They wanted a miracle worker. His death and resurrection were actually prophesied in Isaiah 53. But with all of those things they should have been looking for and were looking for, they rejected him as Messiah because he called for heart change. They rejected the virgin birth and literally called him an illegitimate child and never forgot about this story of Mary and Joseph. In the Gospel of John, well into Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees said to Jesus, we're not illegitimate children like you. The virgin birth was turned into that accusation. They said his miracles were real but they couldn't accept that they came from God because then they'd have to listen to what he said, so they said they were empowered by Satan. They said the missing body, which was the resurrection, must have been stolen, not resurrected. In other words, they were looking for all of this, and they still rejected it. What is a God to do if that's the condition of the human heart? Even God faces almost insurmountable odds in the salvation process because of our natural fallen heart condition. Jesus described it, as I said earlier, with the kinds of soil. Hard soil, where God's word can't penetrate. Stony soil, where it penetrates and then is sort of dried up. Weedy soil, where where God's word penetrates but the things of the world choke it out. And some good soil where it bears fruit. Or, more simply, the barriers to finding God are our sin nature, the flesh, the world around us that we want to fit into, Satan, other religions, falsehoods, expectations and experiences in our lives that make us feel like God hasn't been fair with us. There are all kinds of barriers in our hearts, in the hearts of our friends and relatives and neighbors to finding and following God. And so we need messengers like John the Baptist to prepare us for Jesus. If you're here, you've had those messengers. And it's probably been many exposures to people or situations or experiences that have opened your heart to faith. That Isaiah 40 passage is an analogy taken from sort of construction practices in the ancient world. This analogy is the practice of preparing for a royal visitor, for a king to come. And when a king was going to come, a messenger would go ahead of time and prepare the roads. Go into all the towns and say, we're going to have a king coming through here. You need to fix the roads. Low spots were filled in. High spots were leveled. Curves were straightened. Obstacles were eliminated. The king could then come unobstructed. That's what it says. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up or filled in. Every mountain and hill be made low, be made smooth. Let the rough ground become plain. Get rid of the rocks and boulders and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. In other words, get people ready for God. John the Baptist did that. He preached to, we don't know a lot about his ministry, but he preached to no doubt tens of thousands of people. He became so popular that people thought he might be the Messiah himself. But he never preached that he was God and had that answer. He preached about Jesus and he preached about repentance. The basic idea meaning to turn, to change. He was trying to change people's hearts so that when Jesus came, it would be an easy acceptance of his message. He got people ready to receive Jesus. And Jesus' message was still too radical for most. You are a John the Baptist, right? You're intended to be because people's hearts haven't changed. I'm a John the Baptist in somebody's lives. Bethany is a John the Baptist. Every church that's preaching truth is meant to be a John the Baptist to a group of people who need Jesus. Just a couple apps. First, Jesus went unrecognized then and now. People need Jesus and it is not easy for them to see him. Joshua Bell emerged from the Metro and positioned himself against the wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, long sleeve t-shirt, Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he pulled a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he threw in a few dollars to encourage people to do the same and some pocket change as seed money And began to play the violin. For the next 45 minutes in the DC Metro on January 12, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert as over a thousand people streamed by. Most of them didn't pay attention. If they had paid attention, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist that he is. They also might have noted the violin he played, a rare Stradivarius worth over three million dollars. It was all part of a project arranged by the Washington Post, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend and would people recognize it? Three days earlier, Joshua Bell had sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100. In the subway that day, He garnered about $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation because they didn't recognize who he was. It's hard for people to recognize what and who is right in front of them. Context matters so much, and it's no different with Jesus. It's extremely hard for people in our world today to recognize and acknowledge who Jesus is. Jesus went unrecognized then and now. And we are his messengers today, removing those obstacles to faith. That's our role. Dr. Jerry Root wrote an article, tells a story, when evangelism really isn't that hard. A lot of us are kind of afraid to share our faith. We're kind of afraid to be upfront with it. I get that. I get that. We all want to fit in. We all want to be liked. I know it's hard to believe, but I want people to like me. We all want to be liked. He says this, While my flight was delayed, I met a woman in the Vienna airport. She was wearing a lanyard with a name tag and carrying a clipboard, obviously taking a survey for the airport. When she came to me, I asked her what her name was, and she said, Allegra. I said, Allegra, are you from Vienna? No, I grew up in southern Austria. And with that answer came the permission to ask, What brought you to Vienna? She was a student, and this opened the door for more. Where did she go to school? What was she studying? So after 20 minutes or so, I knew a good deal about Allegra. I knew her mother abandoned the family to go to Canada with her lover. I tracked them down last week, no, I didn't. I learned her father's bitterness was toxic. I learned her brother also attended the University of Vienna, but they were estranged. When I expressed my sadness for what seemed to be a good deal of estrangement and hurt from the people closest to her, she said it was far worse than she had confided. She had had a boyfriend who went to study art in Florence for six months. He asked her to wait for him. He asked her to wait for him and she did so. Her boyfriend returned the very day before I met Allegra only to inform her that he met somebody better in Florence and she faced that rejection. I knew where God was wooing her and I know the deep felt need where Allegra was likely to hear the gospel. So after 20 minutes, she had not asked me one question. I said to her that I knew she had a survey to fill out but I had been sent to tell her something. So she wondered if I was a plant put there by the airport to see if she was doing her job. I assured her it was nothing like that. But I had something to say to her once she finished her survey questions. She rushed through the airport survey and then put down her pen, looked me in the eye and eagerly said, so what were you supposed to tell me? Knowing that Allegra felt abandoned and betrayed, I said to her, Allegra, the God of the universe knows you and loves you. He would never abandon you or forsake you. And I said it to her again, Allegra, he loves you. Sometimes it takes three times before the words sink in, so I said it again. Allegra, he loves you. And after the third time, she burst into loud sobs. Everyone in the gate area was looking in our direction. And through her tears, Allegra blurted out, but I've done so many bad things in my life. I said, Allegra, God knows all about it, and that's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of your sins and to bring you forgiveness and hope. I was explaining the gospel to ears willing to hear and a heart willing to receive. All God asks us to do is not be perfect apologists, although that helps, if you know some of those things, but to identify the deep needs that everyone around us has and their longing to find wholeness and peace with God and to have the conversations that help them to go from the minus 10 to the minus eight, to the minus six, to the minus four, to the minus two, to a point where they say yes to Jesus. That's evangelism. It's just being a friend. It's coming alongside new people that you meet and helping them to make that path back towards God. Who are we doing that for? Who are you doing that for? Because to do that, you need some people in your life who don't know Jesus, which means we kind of got to break out of the holy huddle sometimes, don't we? And have friends who are real people who don't know Jesus. Who am I doing that for? Are we creating a culture at Bethany? Because we're trying to. After preaching and teaching, I think the number one job of the elders and pastors is to say we need to create a culture where people who are at any stage of spiritual development can come and learn and grow and find God and then grow in him. Church isn't for Christians. Church is for Christians and people on the path towards it. You say, well, that's, that's sort of a modern thing. That's that whole seeker movement. Oh, no, no, no. First Corinthians. What did Paul tell the Corinthian Christians? Kind of got to temper some of this use of gifts because people are going to think you're crazy. The people who don't know God who are in your services are going to think you're crazy. That's what he said about speaking in tongues in the first century. Got to watch that because the unbelievers among you are going to think you're crazy. The church is meant to be a place where all can come and know and see who Jesus is. And find him. And we will continue to make the necessary changes to make. God, we thank you for your word. And we love this story about John the Baptist, and the story of his parents and this, their infertility, and then the, the blessing of this messenger who came into the world, who was necessary, even with Jesus coming to the planet, who was still necessary to pave the way and to prepare hearts for God's message. How much more so today are we necessary and our churches necessary to be a part of that process to make clear a path for God and his truth. Help us to be that as individuals. Help us to be that as a church culture. Help us to never, never be able to escape the thought of our friends and neighbors and relatives who are outside of faith. They need you. They need forgiveness. They need a connection to truth and to Jesus. Help us to faithfully be that bridge. In Jesus' name, amen.